You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Social engineering with a few twists. Some airlines may be exposing passenger data with insecure check-in links. APT-10 may be lying low for now, but the U.S. Department of Homeland Security expects the cyber spies to be back. A researcher finds a macOS keychain bug, but would rather not tell Apple about it. Governments in Europe and North America continue to assess risks associated with Huawei and ZTE. Carol Terrio reports on the security of a popular video player's update mechanism. And a Trojan hides in The Sims 4. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 7th, 2019. There are a few fresh, or at least not yet entirely stale, approaches to social engineering out in the wild. We'll begin with a variation on the familiar tech support scheme. Security firm Symantec has found one in circulation that does a moderately good job of mimicking Symantec's own Norton security software's conduct of a system scan. If you're watching, it casually goes through its paces. It looks more or less like the genuine article, but instead of scanning for problems, it's installing them. Whoever's behind the spoofed approach is using it to trick people into downloading malware, or at the very least, the sort of junk we've all come to call potentially unwanted programs. Researchers at Akamai have reported finding a phishing campaign that uses Google Translate to obtain Facebook and Google credentials. It's convincing in the way it spoofs two well-known brands to build up the victim's trust. It also uses Google Translate to hide what it's up to behind the gibberish. The scam runs something like this. The victim receives an email that purports to be a notification from Google that a device somewhere has newly logged into the victim's account and that they sure hope it's you, the victim. You're then invited to follow a link to verify that the login is legitimate. If you do this, the malicious domain of a credential harvesting page is loaded via Google Translate. You will, of course, be invited to sign into your Google account. It may not stop there. There's a good chance you'll subsequently be wafted over to a bogus Facebook login page, because, of course, you'll want to keep that account secure as well, no? Be careful of such alerts. Akamai says the fraud looks pretty good on a mobile device, but it's much less convincing on a laptop or desktop. A well-known video player software package recently raised eyebrows with how they've chosen to implement updates. Our UK correspondent, Carol Terrio, has the story. Well, developers at the popular open-source video player VLC have defended a decision not to use HTTPS for software updates. This has upset some of their users. I reached out to Paul Ducklin of Sophos's Naked Security to find out if they're actually doing security properly. 
Duck, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today for The Daily. Now, according to Edward Kovacs' article from Security Week, the VLC open source video player communicates with its server over HTTP, not HTTPS. And some people are in a big hoo-ha about this. So what's going on here? Oh, is it the end of the world? Shouldn't we all be using HTTPS now? <laughs> well, there, there are kind of three parts to this. There's the, the whole idea of using HTTPS is not just that you encrypt the transaction so no one knows what it is you're looking at and, and people can't, but also that it's authenticated so that nobody can tamper with it along the way. So that's great when you're viewing a website, you want to see the padlock, you want to think get a fighting chance of knowing you're on the right side and you want to be sure that what you're seeing wasn't fiddled with along the way. So the news you're reading is as it was served up. Okay. So obviously when you're doing a web download for an update, it would be nice to use HTTPS because you get those properties. However, it seems that what VLC are doing is another step that if they weren't doing but were using HTTPS, kind of would get forgotten about. They have a digital signature in the file you actually download. Oh. And in a way, if you if you could only pick that or HTTPS, I'd take the digital signature in the file because it stays with the file after it's downloaded. Okay, explain to us how that works. Well, the idea is when you think of when you do an HTTPS connection, basically your browser and the web server do a kind of cryptographic dance to agree a security key to check the certificates out, figure out, yes, I'm probably on the right site. And then what you get is basically a network connection that is scrambulated, encrypted. Gotcha. Then you just talk regular old HTTP over that encrypted connection and nobody can see inside. So they don't actually, if they're sniffing the traffic, they don't even know whether you're talking HTTP or whether you're sending email or what you're doing. Okay. So in other words, TLS is short for transport layer security, and it's about securing the network pipe during the time that you're connected to a website and during the download. It doesn't say anything about the integrity of the stuff you download after it arrives. So, of course, I could get something bad, but delivered to me securely. Yes. And uh -huh. indeed, you'll find these days, now that HTTPS certificates are easy to get through a service like Let's Encrypt, that an ever-increasing proportion of phishing sites will set up a temporary web server. They'll go and get a free certificate. Now, those certificates only last three months, just for safety's sake. But, you know, a phisher needs, what, three hours, three days, three minutes? So... <laughs> Increasingly, phishing sites have the padlock, they have the certificate. The certificate says, yes, this site really is called you've never heard of me before.com. So just looking for the padlock alone is not enough. Although what we usually recommend people do is if there isn't a padlock, steer clear of the site because who knows what's going on and who knows uh, whether what you're seeing is actually what, what you're supposed to see. In the case of downloading an update, however, you download the file. If someone tampers with it along the way, then there's a secondary check done by the update process. And you, in an ideal world, for software updates, you want both. Yeah, so what we're basically saying, and I think we agree, VLC, good job that you're checking the file, but maybe also implement HTTPS because it's just good for all of us. Agreed. HTTPS alone would not be enough. Right. The absence of HTTPS just 
draws attention to them and raises a whole load of questions that I think it would be much easier for them if they didn't have to answer. Yeah, and they wouldn't have to be dealing with this little nightmare on Twitter at the moment. Yeah, and going, oh, well, it, it, she'll be right, folks. It's already not too bad. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, are you sitting comfortably? Let, here's the explanation. Best defence, not be there. I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you, Paul Ducklin from Naked Security at Sophos. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire. Don't forget you can catch Carol Terrio on her podcast, Smashing Security, along with her second banana sidekick, Graham something or other. Check it out. Air travelers, take note. Link's airline send for online check-in may be insecure. Security firm Wandera has published a study of some 40 global air carriers and found that eight of them put passenger data at risk by using unencrypted links. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security commented that China's APT-10 has been quieter since two of its alleged operators were indicted late last year. But DHS is pretty confident APT-10 hasn't gone away and will be heard from again. Among APT-10's more prominent activities last year, according to Recorded Future and Rapid7, was a campaign against Norwegian managed service provider Visma. Microsoft Security thinks otherwise, and that the threat actor in this case was APT-31, also known as Zirconium. A researcher has found a macOS keychain zero day, but he won't share it with Apple until Cupertino sets up a proper bug bounty program. The researcher says he's not greedy, nor is he angling for a big payout, but he thinks bug bounties are the proper way to handle disclosure of vulnerabilities researchers uncover. Huawei seems likely to be excluded from Canada's 5G. It seems, the South China Morning Post reports, more a matter of when than if. In Germany, it's still looking like an if, but trending conditionally toward when. Deutsche Welle says that Berlin is taking its time and that a decision to use Huawei gear would amount to an act of faith. Chancellor Merkel wants assurances from Beijing that the sort of intelligence and security collaboration Chinese law enjoins wouldn't, in fact, be required should Huawei be permitted to play a major role in Germany's telecommunications infrastructure. Huawei's smaller counterpart ZTE has also come in for its share of hostile scrutiny. Czech cyber officials said earlier this week that the company was unlikely to be invited to participate in Prague's build-out of the nation's telecoms infrastructure. And some U.S. senators, notably Senator Rubio, Republican of Florida, have been making noises about the potential security threat ZTE represents. The Chinese companies, and Huawei in particular, are undertaking various measures to mollify their critics. They are receiving some support in this effort from various telecommunications providers who would like to continue to use equipment they find affordable and reliable. The latest European telco to side with Huawei is Turkey's Turkcell, which says that while security is of course an important concern, it's unfair to punish a company for uncorroborated allegations. In Poland, where a Huawei representative has been accused of spying, the company has offered to establish a security center that would allay fears that the device manufacturer was a reliable collaborator with Chinese intelligence. In the UK, where a widely reported but as yet unreleased report from the GCHQ office charged with monitoring Huawei as a security risk is expected to be harsh, Huawei has written a letter to Parliament in an attempt to manage expectations, since GCHQ is expected to say that Huawei has delivered on few to none of the promises it made 
to address security concerns. Huawei has preemptively answered by telling Westminster that it will really need three to five years to do everything the security watchdogs expect of it. And finally, there's a story of an electrical provider breach in South Africa, Johannesburg-based ESCOM, which says it provides 95% of the electricity consumed in South Africa, has sustained a breach that has two causes. The first is a familiar one, an unsecured database holding customer information. The second issue has to do with an Azerolt Trojan on a company computer. Azerolt is an information stealer. How did it get there? Well, according to Bleeping Computer, the malware was misrepresenting itself as a downloader for the Sims 4 game. Presumably, somebody needed a break. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Uh, Awais, welcome back. Um, We wanted to talk today about uh, some thoughts you have on some of the challenges folks are facing when it comes to securing their smartphones. What do you want to share with us today? So the challenges of uh, smartphone security and privacy are highlighted by a lot of people over the years. Uh, We know that you know, often users struggle to set up their smartphones to to keep their data private when they don't necessarily want it to be shared. There is also analysis that, for example, you know, third-party applications on smartphones can potentially also leak information. 
I think one thing that has not been studied very well to date is as to what is the impact of the default features that manufacturers often provide. So, you know, the examples of these would be default location services, things like iCloud, Google Assistant, you know, or uh, um, ad tracking, for instance. And some of the recent work that we have done actually shows that the users find it really, really hard to understand the features that actually even manufacturers build into the into the phones and what is the impact on on their privacy from using these features and so what what are the solutions here is this a matter of education awareness or uh, do uh, do governments have to get involved so i, th- I think there are so multiple multiple solutions we can't we can't always push the burden onto the users uh, because uh, you know as a user what you want to do is you want to get your phone you want to enjoy it and uh, for instance you know when you're setting up your new phone uh, you're quite tempted to skip you know, all those settings that you, you you are being asked about because you want to now use your new device that you have bought and you want to start using its functionality. Uh, but also, you know, a lot of the times it is not particularly clear to users as to what happens when they are uh, utilizing uh, utilizing a feature. Uh, so, for instance, uh, let's let's take Apple as an example. You know, when when you get a new smartphone, you know, you are told that you ought to be signing into into out iCloud and so on and so forth. And now, increasingly over the years, Apple, Apple has started to make the implications of that much clearer. But still, it's not really very, very clear to users as to what, what the opt-out necessarily means for them, what, what may happen when they opt in. But also, if you don't set it up, then you keep getting these reminders that you ought to, you ought to set it up. And it, it's very, very hard for users to actually understand how much information to give up to gain the benefits that they they ought to be gaining. And in fact, we don't really provide enough of that information. Regulation is one possible way of doing it, but uh, it it has been shown that, for example, consent and so on alone does not actually really empower users. A lot of, I'm not just suggesting mobile manufacturers, a lot of uh, services use opt-out mechanisms, which are a really poor way of actually encouraging users to to give consent because you basically go, do you want to opt out? If no, you can carry on. And the easiest path is to carry on. Uh, so there's a lot of scientific research around this to, to highlight as to what are the implications of these kind of uh, mechanisms that then almost guide users towards making a choice when uh, which is not necessarily uh, best informed and is not necessarily empowering. It seems to me like the... Uh, some of the app developers in particular take advantage of that anticipation. You want to get to using that app as quickly as possible, but then there's a kind of a set it and forget it problem where you may give permission once for that moment when you want to use that app, but that setting is there for the rest of the time you have that app installed on your device. Absolutely, and many times users would, would agree to an initial default setting thinking they will go back and change it, but then over time you just simply forget you're going to have to change it. Uh, similarly, in some cases, for example, devices would show that the, even manufacturers would show that your device setup is not complete because you haven't signed into a particular service. But you don't actually need that service uh, continue to use the uh, to use the device properly. However, there is this kind of mental burden on you to say, well, actually, you haven't finished yet. You need to come back and finish it. And the only way you can get rid of that that message is by going and signing in when you don't necessarily need to sign in. And and many times, actually, it's not even app developers. You know, it's how we present permissions to users. So, for instance, you might download an app and it says it needs access to your uh, photos, for instance. And it may not be that it needs access to your photos. It needs access to some storage, which requires it to store maybe some images in your device. 
But as a user, it's not clear to you why should it really have access to that storage? Why does it need access to that storage? And I think the ecosystem is very complicated. There is a lot of value in it, but equally, we don't necessarily make it easy for users to understand what they are giving up, how much they, they ought to be giving up, and what's the benefit do they get. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over time. Uh, Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire. 
and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. (laughs) 